Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is Crystal Farmer, who lives in Oakland. She likes Twitter, podcasts, and emo music in that order. Crystal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, And thank you also for helping me uh, attempt to hunt down whether or not blueberry Cheerios have ever actually existed. I honestly don't believe they have. Uh, The the closest listeners that we've been able to get is to find an old gaming thread uh, that is locked um, and is like buried under off-topic discussions. And people are trying to figure out whether or not this one person's cousin who claimed to have had blueberry Cheerios about four years ago actually had them or in fact just... um, uh, and invented this memory whole cloth. And so far we have not been able to find an answer. So if anyone listening knows anything about blueberry Cheerios, please let us know. Now I feel like Cheerios General Mills would have like, you know how Ben and Jerry's will have all their discontinued flavors. I feel (laughs) like General Mills would have had that. And if we can't find it, then it probably didn't exist. I can't imagine why they would want to cover it up, frankly. (laughs) It's a conspiracy. That seems unlikely. (laughs) We're also uh, coming to you, listeners, from a different studio. Uh, You may remember last week that you got to experience an exciting buzzing noise uh, that came along with the advice. You got both advice and buzzing noise at no additional cost. Um, we're recording double shows today, so it's the same day for us, and the buzzing noise has not stopped. So we have moved to a different room, uh, which may have different acoustics, but we wanted to spare you uh, a return of the buzzing sound, um, which I cannot imagine was a lot of fun for any of you. So please and thank you for bearing with us. All right, um, Crystal, do you want to give advice to a lot of people now? Sure. Um, I have the questions in front of me, but I don't know that you do. So I might be reading all of the letters today. Okay. And then you will just get to give more advice to sort of balance out. Yeah. Okay. So the first subject letter or the first subject line is simply not for me. Dear Prudence, my family is about as polar opposite of me on the political spectrum as can be, but I still love them. I abide by my grandmother's house rules of no talking about politics or religion at family gatherings. It saves a lot of heartache. I live on the opposite coast from the rest of my family and can only fly out to see them about once a year for about a week each time. My boyfriend has come with me for the last four years, but this year he told me that he doesn't want to come. He said he was tired of putting up with their, quote, redneck BS. I asked him to come for me and he said no. I feel very betrayed. We've had serious talks about marriage and kids, but I can't be with someone who expects me to cut off my entire family. I told him that he was being unfair and that we go see his family at least once a month, including his anti-vaccination sister and wacky aunt who always wants to cleanse my aura with stuff that she buys on Facebook. I genuinely do like most of his family, but I think the principle is the same. This is really driving a wedge into our relationship. I can't believe he is not willing to give up a week for me. I don't know what to do. Help. So I feel like part of the trick to figuring out this letter is what um, the phrase redneck bs is code for Mm -hmm. and also what kind of arrangement do they have that she has agreed to go see his family once a month but he can't go see her family once a year i imagine it's something to do with proximity like Mm -hmm. if his family lives closer by 
But still, uh, that seems like an even more of a reason to sort of acquiesce and say, like, sure, your family lives on an opposite coast. Maybe we can go see them once a year. Yeah, I think part of what's tricky for me as I try to think through, like, what would be a reasonable compromise here mm-hmm. is the question of, like, um, when he says that phrase, does he mean he does not like um certain ways that they have of like thinking about the world or are there like specific things that they have espoused that he really objects to Mm -hmm. that have to do with uh kind of important issues and without that detail uh, i'm not really sure whether your boyfriend is being kind of a jerk here or like you know the grandmother's house rules is like does that mean nobody who disagrees with the family like how do you guys know that that's like, how does, you, how, does, how does your boyfriend know that there's something that he objects to if it hasn't been brought up? So I'm kind of curious, does it sort of mean everybody can talk about those things as long as the family is in agreement mm-hmm. or what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I would assume that's the case and that likely the way that they talk about those things has given him the impression that he has other beliefs and his beliefs clash with theirs and such that he's like, OK, well, I don't think that this is an environment that I enjoy. But at the same time, like you were saying, redneck BS, I mean, anti-vax beliefs aren't necessarily that. And and so same with like cleansing your aura. So I'm wondering if it's the beliefs or if it's a class thing as well, because, you know, maybe that's part of it. Right. Yeah. Because I can see a version where there's like a, a pretty strong element of classism on the boyfriend's part that's probably objectionable. Mm-hmm. Or I could see that perhaps part of the reason the letter writer was nonspecific about the things that the boyfriend objects to um, was in part to avoid a difficult conversation. So I think the important thing for you to do right now is really drill down with your boyfriend. What are the things that he objects to? Because if it's something like, you know, your grandparents have repeatedly said that they don't think gay people are people. Um, that's a worthwhile objection. And if it has more to do with the fact that um, he looks down on them for not having as much money or for not being a, whatever he would expect somebody's relatives to be, then I think that's really worth pushing back on. But so I think you should say, like, what do you mean when you say that phrase? Right. And also, like, does she need to be a little bit more um, open about how she feels about his family's beliefs? Because of those anti-vax things and cleansing your aura like that may not be everything that bothers her but those are some of the things and so if she's also not being open about the things that bother her that's also a problem yeah so it seems like the letter writer um at least believes that it is on a similar level because they do say i think the principle is the same Mm -hmm. which again all we have to go on is how the letter think that in her mind or is she talking about that with her partner right Right. it's really hard because i can imagine a version of this where her family has said some really objectionable things and she's trying to say no it's just the same as like when your aunt tries to cleanse my aura or i can see a version where it absolutely does fall under the category of like um irritating or or um you know uh, non-scientific or not especially helpful but does not fall into the category of uh, recognizing the humanity of others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think for you, letter writer, you need to figure out, like, is this an issue that your boyfriend sees as having to do with, like, defending the humanity of all people? Um, or is this uh, an unreasonable request that he's making? Right. Um, and yeah, I think it's good that it's driving a wedge right now in as much as this is going to be an issue that's going to come up a lot if you get married and have exactly. kids. Exactly. If they're, if they're expecting to be together forever, then likely these are things they need to talk about. Yeah, which isn't fun, but you pay attention to the wedge. Um, and 
you know, hopefully you guys can have a conversation about this where you say, like, we're trying to learn more about where we're both coming from. Mm-hmm. Let's share that stuff honestly and reserve judgment until after we've done that kind of initial. Here's how I see it. Here's how I see it. Um, but yeah, if ultimately he says, like, my ideal relationship with you, I'd never come visit your family and I never interact with them and that doesn't fly with you, that's you got to pay attention right. to that. Um, and it's also okay if you say like, I don't want to visit your family every month, mm-hmm. or I am going to politely decline when your aunt offers to cleanse my aura. Right. That's okay. You don't, I, I don't think that's a reasonable thing to ask. Of yeah, a partner. I can imagine a situation where this person is extremely polite. And so they sort of opposite to the way her boyfriend does. And since saying like, I don't believe in those redneck values saying sort of I can see her going with the flow more than maybe he does. And so maybe there's a situation where he just doesn't understand that these also bother her. And it's hard because with your family, like your family of origin, you've known the things that you disagree about or the things that bother you about them for a long time. And you also have that shared history and like love and like, well, yes, this is frustrating, but I've also, you know, known this cousin for, you know, 30 years and I love Mm -hmm. them. Whereas... To the person you're seeing, it's like, who's this woman I see once a year (laughs) who I really don't like? Um, So, yeah, if there's an important moral issue here, it's important to talk about that and acknowledge it. Uh, If that's not the thing, if it's just that he expects a lot of tolerance and freedom on his family side and is not willing to extend the same to yours, uh, then that is worth pushing back on. But, yeah, I'm just so curious what what happened last year. Yeah. Like that that year four, he's like, you know what? No more. Yeah. I mean, I can guess some things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I have a couple of yeah. educated guesses, mm-hmm. but uh, because there's no more detail in this letter, we, we just have to say, I think you guys will have to have this conversation with one another. And, um, you know, if, if you feel like you can't be with someone who expects you to cut off your family and it doesn't quite sound like he's asking you to do that. Yet. Yeah, it makes it sound like more he's just not interested. But if that to you feels like it puts you in a position of having to choose, choose. and you've mm-hmm. already decided what you would choose, you you may decide fairly quickly to break up. Right. Um, and that would be an acceptable outcome given your circumstances. Um, it, it would be better to do this before you got married and had kids. Right. Um, and it may be that the idea of that may make your partner sort of reevaluate how they're approaching the situation as well. Because maybe they don't want to lose you as a partner. Maybe they are, maybe it might make them realize, oh, okay, maybe this is something I can, we can work out. So. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a really good rule to say at the dinner table, we're not going to discuss politics and religion. And sometimes it's a bad rule. Sometimes it's a rule that says, I'm going to ignore really significant issues that have to do with how we treat other people who are not within our family circle. Um, But because I like you and I'm comfortable with you and you treat me well, I'm going to just go ahead and paper over those things. Which doesn't mean that everybody has to immediately go from this is fine to I'm never speaking to my family again. But if the closeness is predicated on never talking about Issues that have to do with, like, what should the world be? Right. Does never mean never or does it mean not often? Yeah. Does never mean never or does it mean, like, the dominant family view takes precedence Mm -hmm. and nobody else gets to express anything Mm -hmm. else? And I don't know. I could spin off in a speculation a lot. I wonder if it's a situation in their family where, like, they just don't talk about it with the older people. Like, maybe the older people have these views and they're just like, there's nothing we can say to change them. So we just don't discuss things. Right. 
And that's hard, too, because I think when your goal is, if I can't change somebody's mind, then we'll never discuss it. Mm -hmm. It it can sort of put you in a position where it's like either you only have conversations where you believe you're 30 seconds away from changing someone's mind on the topic entirely, or you never discuss it. And that puts you in a position to kind of never have meaningful conversations. But you do have some conversations in your future, letter writer, (laughs) and I wish you a lot of luck with it. All right. So this this next uh, letter also has to do with compromises, reasonable and unreasonable, and and family members. And we were talking about this earlier as we were waiting to move studios. Um, it has to do with the Alexa device and various people's feelings about that. And we were talking about ways in which it seems like in some ways voice powered technology was like really exciting and like the 60s and in the Jetsons and like people who came of age during that era were very like, oh, voice activated technology, exactly what I wanted. Whereas a lot of people who came of age in like the 90s and the early aughts are like, any technology where I don't have to talk ever, that's what I want. Um, And I was just thinking of my own family and the ways in which um, the boomers are like, yes, give me an Alexa. And the younger people are like, I don't want to talk on the phone. And this reminds me of talking on the phone. (laughs) I mean, for me, I I sort of think the opposite, like, I mean, if the boomers were so into, like, the technology, then how come they completely are terrible at the middle step, which is touchscreens? Look, right? like, I don't want to make so any bad. sweeping generalizations <laughs> I will about make them for you. what boomers are and aren't capable of when it comes I'm to touchscreens. Not sorry, boomers. I'll, I'll get a I'll get a boomer on the next uh, episode, and we will we will discuss we uh, alternate debate. points of views. Yeah, yes. we'll get a point counterpoint mm-hmm. going. So the subject of this is just don't want to be bugged, dear Prudence. My husband and daughter and I will be staying with my sister, Meg, and her family for Easter. Holiday visits like this are a regular thing since my mom moved in with them. Last week, when we talked, I asked Meg to disconnect those Alexa things they have all over their house before our visit. My husband and I are not technophobes. We have cell phones and computers, but we find these things bizarre and intrusive and can't believe so many people are willingly bugging their own houses. Meg acted like we had asked them to carry water from a well rather than turn lights and TVs off and on or type a grocery list by hand. They refused. We're still going, but this will be the last time, as my husband and I agreed that we'll stay at a hotel in the future. I still can't believe they wouldn't accommodate us. Was this such a huge ask on our part? Or is Meg being stubborn and short-sighted? Also, when they invite us to stay again, we'll need to explain why we're staying at a hotel. What do I say? I mean, it seems like a simple solution to this problem, just stay at a hotel. Yeah, the good news is yeah, you, you apparently have, have the resources hotel. to stay at a hotel. Exactly. Uh, I mean, initially when I first read this letter, I thought, that it was just going to be that they weren't a fan of the Alexa, like, in general. But it seems like this family is using them more for, like, general household things, like turning lights on and off and making grocery lists and things, which if it was just sort of a more frivolous thing, then I could see someone saying, like, hey, would you mind turning that off? But if they're using it for things that they find practical and that help them around their home, then I don't necessarily think it's fair for you to expect them to do that. And also... What is the length of time that they're staying? Is it It sounds a like day, a, week. a week. Okay. Yeah. That's a long time. If it was a weekend. Ooh, you know what? It may not be a week, actually. They talked a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be Easter, which I imagine is going to be a, the weekend. maybe a three-day weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. T- so, I mean, it seems like a simple solution. Like, it's only three days. You can stay in a hotel for three days. Um, I, I just don't, I don't see the problem. Um I, I mean, I get it. I don't love Alexa. I don't have one. I don't know anybody who has one. And I, I find it weird. But I don't think it's fair to sort of go to someone else's home and say, okay, well, now that I'm here, 
you have to change the way that you do things completely and expect them to, you know, go along with your plan. Yeah, the good news is you already have a workable compromise, mm-hmm. which is that you guys will stay at a hotel. Yeah. And that's fine. I, sometimes there are families that are really like, no, it's very important. Everyone stay at the family home. And they haven't. The letter writer didn't give any indication that the family members would be upset if they right. stayed at a hotel. So. And it's honestly fine to say, like, look, we're a little paranoid about the Alexa thing. I get that you guys feel differently. We'd rather stay at a hotel. Although I imagine you'll still be spending some time at their house. Yeah, because so you're do still they visiting them to like have them. Yeah, it I seems I, like sort of a question of degree of like, okay, I'll spend some time in the afternoon in your house, and that's an okay amount of time for Alexa to be able to hear me. But, but if afterwards, that's the case, then what is your real sort of, you know, what is their real beef with it then? Because if they can spend an hour, six hours, but not seventy-two, like there's not a real significant difference. I don't think. Yeah, I'll say this. I think. The degree to which the technology most of us already have in our homes is pretty invasive already. Right. They have cell phones and they're surveilling them. Yeah. Right I now, mean, you've so. got a presumably a camera on your laptop. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have it covered with tape, but, you know, there's there's already a lot of ways in which, you know, uh, data that we once thought of as really private is now more publicly available. Um, and not even publicly available. We give it. Yeah. to people all the time. So. Yeah, and it's absolutely understandable to want to have like a, an individual relationship to that data whenever possible. I don't think that you're, you know, totally off base for right. wanting to think carefully about the degree you want technology to be a part of your life like that. But I will say sometimes when a like will already be at a tipping point for something and then a new thing will come out and it'll feel like this new thing is a real step beyond everything yeah. else. Like, no, I was telling you earlier with the sort of the iPhone with the fingerprint technology. Mm-hmm. When I first heard about that, I was like, there's no way I would ever do that. And now I can't imagine having to type a code into my phone to unlock it. I love the fact that I can just touch it and it's open and I can just, I don't know, tweet or whatever it is I want to do. You do um, love to tweet. I do love to tweet. <laughs> don't follow me on Twitter. Um, yeah. I mean, but when that first came out, I was a lot more hesitant about it. Now I just don't even think about it. So yeah, it might be a situation where these people feel this way now in 2018 in March, but, you know, maybe in 2019 or 2020, they might have Alexis of their own. So I think for the time being, just staying at a hotel until you get over it or, you know, and if you never get over it, then you can still always stay at a hotel. It just seems like an easy compromise. Yeah. And, you know, for what it's worth, um, I, I, I can understand not wanting to put a lot of trust in like a tech company's promise that they will not use your data for any nefarious purposes. Uh, I will also point out that like, you know, like Google home devices or Alexa devices are not just like automatically recording everything that you say. Like there's a keyword you need to state. Um, You can also go back and delete those things even after they're recorded. You can certainly say, you know, when we're in the house, please don't record anything that we're saying but yeah i i would say it's not like um it's not quite on the level of an automatic wiretap right um yeah i mean but if you feel that it is you can just stay at a hotel yeah that's a that's an okay solution it it may be helpful for you to kind of learn a little bit more about ways in which these devices are distinct and also contiguous with other devices that you may already have in your home um, it may be that learning more information makes you feel kind of more freaked out in which case i don't you know encourage you to send yourself into a tailspin but yeah if the worst outcome of this is you're like yep we're a little paranoid about this thing i get that it's weird we're going to stay at a hotel rather than ask you to turn off the thing that kind of helps you run your home mm-hmm. um and that's that's fine 
it does make me wonder like how just how connected they are like they're turning on lights and and writing lists that doesn't seem like a lot but and it seems really interesting that the letter writer would be sort of you know that would be a step too far for them yeah, you know, I think there's always people who are like, yes, give me the new thing as soon as it's out. I want everything to be connected and streamlined. And other people who are like, I don't want a car with a computer because, you know, what if that Fast and the Furious thing happens to me? Um, and, and all yes, sorts of things in between. And it's not totally unreasonable to to have particular lines you don't want to cross. It's also um, not unreasonable to sometimes say, am I being more paranoid than I need to? Uh, I don't think any of you are being like totally, totally bonkers. It does seem like the letter writers being slightly unreasonable, though, the way that they describe their sister-in-law as being short-sighted. Sure, and... like willingly bugging their own homes. Yeah. Like, I, I, I do think that's maybe a step too far. Mm -hmm. But um, again, it's it's fine to be a little paranoid about technology. I get that's it. Um yeah, I, I would say maybe don't say things like you're being short-sighted or you're <laughs> yeah. bugging your own home. Exactly. It's uh, their home. They can do. I would just stick features. to, look, I'm really uncomfortable with this and it's fine if you feel differently. I don't think this is the great moral issue of our day, but this is my thing. It could be. You never know. Yeah. I mean, watch watch like tomorrow we find out uh, something terrible. Um, that wouldn't shock me either. All right. The subject line of the next letter is lost in non-translation. Dear Prudence. I worked in a foreign country for several years and ended up meeting and marrying a woman there. With great difficulty, I eventually achieved fluency in that language. My wife was already English fluent when we met. When we moved back to the U.S. and had kids, we worked hard to keep them fluent in both languages. The foreign language is one not spoken often in the United States, and keeping the kids interested was swimming against the tide. They're six and eight now and totally bilingual. We speak both languages at home without much rhyme or reason as to when we speak one versus the other. The problem is my parents. They think it's rude when we or the kids speak in the other language in front of them. I've assured them it's not a question of saying things about them behind their backs or excluding them. It's just how our household works. My wife and I make the effort to remember to keep things in English when my parents are around, but the kids are young and I can't always get them to do what I want. Frankly, given how much effort we put into keeping them fluent, I really hate the idea of using my parental influence to get them not to speak the foreign language. Is it in fact rude to have some foreign language spoken in front of non-speaking relatives? And if it isn't a terribly rude behavior, how would you suggest I get my parents to chill out about it? Man, if I knew how to get everyone's parents to chill out. <laughs> You'd be so rich. This podcast would be so great. Yeah, this is a really hard one because I can understand both sides of the issue. Like I grew up in Central California where like Spanish, you hear Spanish more than you hear English sometimes. and. You know, it can feel a little bit, um, you know, you can feel sort of isolated mm -hmm. if you are the person who's not speaking Spanish or you are in a group of people who aren't speaking Spanish and another group of people are. Did you ever, like, learn more Spanish or was it always? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things where because you're so immersed in it, you do come away with a knowledge of it that you weren't necessarily trying to have. Mm -hmm. But you just, you know, just by dint of having, you know. 18 years or whatever of hearing Spanish almost every day that you you learn it. And so that could, you know, be a positive for their parents. But I do understand how it can be a little bit um, isolating, especially when you're with your own family. It's a little bit different when you're sort of, you know, out in public or you're at school or whatever it is and other people are speaking other languages. But when you're with your family, you do want to, I mean, you want to be understood and you want people to understand you know, you want to understand what other people are saying. And so it it can be a little bit more of a tricky situation. Um, but on the other hand, I don't 
I feel very awkward about suggesting that this parent tell their children not to speak a language that they're trying to maintain their fluency in um, just because the parents feel uncomfortable about it. Right. And, and I think it's important to look at the power dynamics here, which is that English is the dominant language right. of the United States. Right. Uh, often it is very strongly encouraged mm-hmm. um, in like rude ways uh, that everyone speak English all of the time. Um, and you and your wife have worked really hard to maintain like a connection to part of your kid's heritage by making sure that they're bilingual um, and that's meaningful and important. And also I can see that it, it, it is definitely causing some, some stress for the letter writer, but I imagine that it's also causing some stress for their partner as well, because if your partner is in a situation where your parents are saying, I don't want to hear your native tongue, that mm-hmm. can feel not great. And I imagine that the parents, the grandparents have not said, therefore, I'm going to try to learn a little bit right. of your language. Exactly. Um, which is, you know, it's interesting where and when it gets assumed who's going to do the work of learning mm-hmm. another language and speaking in that language primarily right. and it's who's again, not going to. It's It's about being like like you said, the power dynamics and who's accommodating whom, right? Like they're accommodating, the parents want to be accommodated by having people speak English only when they're around, which is, you know, you don't necessarily get to make that decision with someone else's children. Yeah. So I, I would say it's reasonable that your parents would want to um, understand as much of the conversation as possible and that they themselves are not going to become fluent in that language overnight or or even easily and i'm not suggesting like that the only solution is just that they learn your wife's like native tongue um but i think it's it's fair to say look my wife and i are doing our best already now to speak english um when you're around um and and i'm sure you would be willing to periodically like translate if they like didn't catch something um but to say the kids are six and eight and they are bilingual um, and we fluently s- switch between both languages. That's not going to ch- change. Like I cannot change that for you um, without sacrificing my children. Like, I, and you can't even, you can't, you can't. You can't know what kind of effect that would have on the children, right? Like by asking them not to speak the other language that's not English when their grandparents are around. Like you already don't want them to feel stigmatized, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't want that stigma to be coming from their own family. So, yeah, yeah it's it's a really rough situation. Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. I would say you can clarify to your parents like, hey, the kids are not being rude. The kids are being six and eight, mm-hmm. um, which and, they should understand. Obviously. Yeah. And to just really like like I, I get that. It probably feels strange to you. Like I encourage you to use your imagination in those moments and think about how maybe other people um, who who are not immediately fluent upon English can feel sometimes. Um, uh, again, not that they're like wrong to ever feel like, oh, I wish I could hear what the kids are saying. That is really understandable. But the part about like the kids are being rude. Um, you need to only ever speak English when we're around, even though they're not yet at an age where they're necessarily able to make a really conscious switch between the languages, which will come as they get older. Um, and so I think to say like, you know, here's what we are willing to do to accommodate you. It would mean a lot if maybe you guys tried to pick up even just a couple of phrases, right. um, just so that you could feel like it was not this great unknowable thing. Like, right. it's and a also language. like you can learn some of it to, you know, foster closeness with your grandchildren. Like yeah. that could be a way to sort of, you know, improve your relationship if it needs improving. I don't 
know what the relationship is like, but you know, it could help. Yeah. Ask, ask the kids to teach you a phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, like grandparents, ask the kids to teach you, like encourage curiosity on their part and say like, you know, I'll, I'll help you. If, if the kids switch, um, I'm happy to translate. I'll certainly kindly remind them to, to, to try to speak English when you're around, but I'm not going to every time they switch over, correct or admonish them. Um, because that would be really confusing for the kids um, and would communicate something that I don't want to communicate to them about their bilingual status. Right. I mean, it's 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 tricky, but it's also sort of just generally like the letter writer's parents respecting the letter writer's like choice as a parent. Like, yeah. you know, everyone makes choices of how they parent their children. And this is one of the choices that the letter writer has made. And it, it would be nice, I think, if the letter writer was able to explain to their parents that you know this is a choice we've made and it's not because we don't you know care about your wishes or or anything it's just that we think that it's important for our family and it would be great if you could be understanding and you know if you want to learn more like we're happy to do so right and again it's like it, it's not that like your parents show up and you guys are all speaking a language that they're not familiar with right. it's just some of the time mm -hmm. and mostly from the kids like right. I, I do think that they will be okay if they will just periodically be like ah. Oh, I don't know what the kids are saying. Yeah. The conversation will come back around to me eventually. And, and I think this probably has as much to do with the sort of anxiety that um, they have grandchildren with like a dual cultural right. heritage mm -hmm. as it does with not being able to speak the language. Yeah. So some of that is something that they're just, I think, going to need to be gently encouraged to let go of. Like, no, you do not have like monolingual, monocultural grandchildren. You don't. Yeah. And, and not only do you not have that, like it should be your... Not should be. I mean, I can't say what people should do. I mean, maybe I can. That's what I mean, I'm here to do. That's what show, I'm here yeah. to do. Um, it it should be their desire as grandparents, you know, to want to learn more about that, right? Like it, it's a little bit different about when it comes to the letter writer and their partner, right? Their partner is not necessarily, you know, they they learn. I'm assuming they learned about them and they, you know, ha feel positively towards the partner. But I think it's a little bit different with the grandchildren, right? And I think wanting to have that closeness of I understand what you're saying and you understand what I'm saying all the time and that you know binds us but sort of I, I can get where they're coming from but I also think that if they made a little bit more effort to understand that it's not going to be that way all the time and that it's fine it would it would go far I think yeah and I think too like presumably this letter writer's wife has a family of origin that does not live in the United States and mm -hmm. so to think too like man, you guys get to live in close proximity with your grandchildren and their other grandparents, it seems like, don't. Right. You're already getting um, access to the kids uh, in a way that the other side of their family doesn't. So I think pushing for more in that moment um, at, at least suggests to me a sort of expectation that I get to dictate the terms of my grandchildren's <laughs> right. identity. Right. Um, which again, I don't want to like come down way too hard on these grandparents and say like you are uh, trying to e erase the other side of no, their family. No, it doesn't sound but, like they're doing that, but it, it does sound like they're being a little bit more rigid, I think, than they should be on yeah. this issue. Yeah, and maybe not looking at um, the ways in which they have already had a lot of um, uh, things made easier or facilitated for them by virtue of speaking English and living in the United States. Right. And also the letter writer says that it was a lot of work to get their kids to be fluent in the first place, yeah. right? And they want that. That's a choice that they deliberately made. So... I think sort of, you know, dialing it back, I think would be undoing a lot of work that they've intentionally, you know, tried to a lot of lessons they've intentionally tried to teach their kids. And I don't 
think that that's that great either. Yeah, no, you worked hard to provide your kids with this. Um, and to, you know, a, a, again, that's not to say you can't encourage them like, hey, when grandma and grandpa are around, we're going to try to speak in English as much as possible. To whatever extent you can, please do. Mm-hmm. That's fair. But to say to, to say that, like, we're going to change the way we talk to our kids regularly in order to make the grandparents happy, I think, would be doing your children a disservice. Yeah. And I, does the letter writer say how often they, like, see their grandparents and how often they hang out with them? Because if it's a thing that doesn't happen that often, it might not cause such, you know, strife for the letter writer to bring this up and say, you know, I know that you feel this way about speaking English, but, you know, we've made a choice to have our kids be bilingual and it's going to happen sometimes that they slip into the other language and it's something that you have to get used to and and be okay with um because if it's not if it's like twice a year or something i feel like the grandparents should be able to get over it yeah there's there's nothing in here uh, about how often they visit or how much time they spend with one another but i think the key is just it's it's some of the time right. it's not as if they show up and they're unable to communicate um a I think this is workable for your your parents. And I don't think you should say, like, just calm down, don't care about it. But, like, stress these points, um, explain ways in which you can uh, try to accommodate them in ways in which you can't um, and say, you know, here's what we're doing to, to, to meet you halfway. It would mean a lot if sometimes you could accept that it's just going to take you a minute or two to dip back into the conversation or you might need to ask me to translate um, or it, it might feel really meaningful if you were to learn a couple of key phrases. Again, not that they're going to be able to like become fluent right. uh, or, or even super conversational, but just that that's a way to engage with the kids. Yeah. Or they can just, you know, say that they're kids and they're not going to always be able to remember every time that there's, you know, switching between languages and it's just going to happen. Yep. All right. This has been a very family heavy episode. Uh, come to think of it, uh, the subject of this last letter is mommy moocher, which is just a heck of a phrase. Dear Prudence, I live in a small street with several single moms. We swap childcare and general help since a lot of us are raising our kids alone. Val, who has two girls, is a mooch. She never seems to be able to make carpool, bring food to potlucks, or send money with her kids for activities. At two recent birthday parties, she dropped her girls off with no gifts and was over an hour late picking them up. Last week, a coworker gave me a bundle of ice skating tickets that she won in a raffle. I offered to take all the neighborhood kids, but I asked the other moms to give their kids snack money. Val lied to me and told me the girls had already eaten. They had only eaten breakfast. I ended up spending the 20 I was saving for pizza for my own kids on Val's girls. None of us are rich. A lot of us live paycheck to paycheck and have to budget carefully. An extra two mouths adds up. Various other mothers have brought up these issues to Val only for her to get defensive and complain about how hard her life is. All our lives are hard, but Val seems to think that she is special. Most of us are ready to kick Val out of the group, but I'm hesitating because my daughter is close to both of Val's daughters. I worry about them. It's nothing that I would call CPS over. I don't think they're being hurt or starved, but their clothes are often ill-fitting and stained. They're struggling in school. How do I deal with Val without hurting her girls? Uh, yeah, this one was rough because I know the the feeling of being that kid that like never has money to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one thing that sort of jumped out at me when I first read it was the idea of it being a moocher. To me, that is not what comes across here. It seems like there's much something much more serious going on, and likely it's not that Val doesn't give her kids money because she just doesn't want to. It seems more like that she just can't. Right. Um, and also there's a, there's a line in there where the letter writer says that a lot of the women on the street mm-hmm. are living paycheck to paycheck. But that to me, that implies that some aren't. Yes. And so, you know, uh, I, I think there's likely more more sort of um, 
stratification than the letter writer is letting on. Right. Um, and yeah, this is really a rough one. Yeah, it doesn't sound like Val is making it from paycheck no, to paycheck. No, exactly. The, the fact that the kids' clothes are ill-fitting and they only ate, but they ate breakfast and that's it. Like, to me, that means that's what they can afford. Yeah, and I think it's important to um, separate these two issues, one of which is that you don't like Val. Because <laughs> that, um, that's also what it sounds like. Which is, you know, she she could be both unpleasant and also have less money than you like both of those things Mm -hmm. can be true and so i think it can sometimes feel like if there's somebody you already don't like um you'll want to kind of ascribe the worst possible motives um and and i can see a a version in which it feels frustrating because it feels like val's just getting a free ride Mm -hmm. but i can also see a version where like she's getting defensive because she's embarrassed that you all know that she has less money and that she she can't afford to feed her kids and i understand her not wanting to You know, she doesn't have the money, but she doesn't want her kids to see all the other kids being able to go and do things in their neighborhood and her kids sort of always being left out. So I get the the defensiveness, but also the sort of um, stubbornness in terms of like not not holding her kids back when she knows she can't afford to do things when they can't afford to do things because you do want them to have experiences and, you know, go places and ice skate and whatever. But it. Yeah, it does not seem like this is a mooching situation. It definitely seems like Val is struggling more than this mother or this letter writer is sort of letting on. And yeah, I think there can be a little bit more empathy for that situation. And I I do understand that she seems like she's likely not one of the women who, you know, is okay paycheck to paycheck. It does seem like this person maybe is struggling as well, but maybe not as much as Val. Right. And yeah. It's... Yeah. I mean, you know, you say she can't make carpool. She doesn't bring food to potlucks and she doesn't send money, money with her kids. And it just seems really clear she probably can't make carpool because her car's not reliable. Right. Um, she can't bring food to potlucks because sometimes she can't they don't give have her kids food. lunch. Yeah. And she doesn't send money with her kids for activities because there's they no money. They don't have it. And, uh, you know, it seems clear to me that your your frustration with Val is prominent, but your primary goal is to support the kids. Mm-hmm. And if that's your goal, I think you just have to accept that Val is sometimes going to do stuff like this. And it sounds frustrating and that doesn't mean you have to always um, pick up the check. But if it means that sometimes the girls come to a birthday party with no gift, it's because there was no money for a gift. If there's right. not money for lunch, there's not money for birthday presents yeah. for other kids. There's not money for like clothes that fit you properly. There's no money for gifts. Yeah. So. And, and uh, you know, um, I, I, I get that you yourself are not like, oh, it's super easy for me to pick up the tab. So obviously if there are times when you can't do that, you can't do that and you don't need to take on that burden for yourself. But I would just say when it comes to dealing with Val, just go with like, she doesn't have the money. She may be dealing with it in a way that's frustrating to me, but she's not doing it for fun or to scam me or because she thinks it's funny. She does it because she doesn't want to say, I couldn't afford to give my kids lunch today. Who wants to say that? Right. Especially to like a neighbor who you kind of already know maybe doesn't like you. Yeah, who wants to tell their kid, like, oh, yes, there's this birthday party, but you can't go because I can't afford a gift. Right, so. like, she's having to make really awful decisions. I, I don't mean that the decision, she, like, she is presented with two bad options, one of which is send my kids out with the other girls knowing that they're hungry, and the other is keeping them hungry at home. Right. 
and and I I can see why she made the choice of I, I want them to at least be able to spend time ice skating with friends. Yeah, and you can see why she made that choice, right? Like the the letter writer says that they all do things for each other. They mm-hmm. babysit. They you know everyone is sort of pitching in all the time. So you can see why Val maybe feels like it's okay sometimes to send her kids to the parties with no gifts. It's okay to sort of go ice skating with no money for snacks because they're all doing things for each other all the time. Um, and so maybe she feels like, okay, well, Val didn't give her kids any money, but you know, maybe she looked after my kid when I needed it or something. Um, so yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be financial and I get how, you know, having a slightly more money than Val can still be a struggle. But, you know, if there's things that Val's also doing for the rest of the women in the community, then that's valuable too. And honestly, even if she's not, the the important thing is that these girls are your daughter's friends and that they need a little extra help. So again, that doesn't mean it's your responsibility to make sure um, that they have everything. But I, I would say whenever there's an opportunity to hang out with them for an hour after a birthday party, even if it's inconvenient, mm-hmm. I, I I would say for the girls, do it. Like they're, they did not create the situation. Val didn't create this situation, right. right? Like Val wasn't like, you know, it sounds like a lot of fun. Being a single mom and not making a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And I get that you have your own like limited resources, both in terms of like money and also just like the ability to care about other people's problems. So again, I don't want to come down hard at you at all or say like, you need to really step up and be, you know, this girl. No, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's just being more understanding and, and, and sort of really, really understanding that Val is not doing it because she is greedy (laughs) or selfish or if that she likes, you know, people thinking the things that this letter writer thinks about her kids clothes being, you know, not, clean or you know not fitting well Um, yeah and i I think that line about most of us are ready to kick foul out of the group i I just don't see how that would help the girls right especially if they still all live in the same neighborhood Right. right like that's just asking for more trouble i think and that doesn't mean that you can't individually decide what you are and aren't okay with like if one of the other moms says you know what um I'm not going to pick up Val's girls. That's fine. She doesn't have to. But you don't have to, as a unit, say, we're the good moms. Val is the bad mom. Val's out. We're all in. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I don't think this is a decision you guys have to make as a unit. And it's absolutely fine if, like, periodically Val asks for something that you guys can't give. But I don't think that you should make it a group policy Mm -hmm. to exclude Val from this group of mutual support. Right. Um, so, yes, absolutely. If there's times you need to say no to Val, you can. But taking it to the level of as a group, you're out, we're in, um, I think would be hurting the girls. And I don't think you want that. Yeah, I think definitely just keeping the girls well-being, I think, is probably in mind is the most important thing. Because, yeah, like you said, they didn't ask for the situation and neither did Val. So, you know, if you could just be a little more, just a little more kind to all people involved that would probably be helpful yeah you don't have to like val you don't have to think she makes great choices you don't have to find her fun to be around um anything like that but um you know when she does something that's frustrating just go with like okay that's where val's at today yeah um is there anything i can do about that if the answer is no just just move on right um and good luck it's hard when it's at this level of like kids are not being um abused but their parents don't have enough money to make their life comfortable, full, and and like safe in some ways. And that's right. really hard. Yeah. And there's a limit to how much you can do to address the situation. So I just, you know, I wish you guys a lot of luck. 
And I'm glad that Val's kids have you and your daughter. Yeah. And then they get to go ice skating. Seems fun. Yeah. Everybody who wants to go ice skating should get to go ice skating if that's a possibility. All right. We've got one last letter and it's actually a voicemail that we're going to go ahead and play. Hi, friends. Uh, I am calling because I am beginning to think that I may be transgender and I am wondering if you have any advice as to what kind of resources I can look into. I've tried Googling and poking around at various Reddit threads, but it's kind of a quagmire of helpful stuff and really, really horrifyingly negative stuff. Uh, I don't live in a city with a ton of resources that I can track down. Uh, I have been assigned female, I guess would be the terminology, for most of my life, but I'm just trying to figure out how to explore this further and I thought that you might have some tips as to places I can go and things I can read uh, that might be helpful. Oh man, (laughs) this is one of those things where the internet is really great and really awful Mm -hmm. because you can find anything. Anything. And that is great and bad. Yeah, especially when it's so clear that she's just searching and she doesn't know exactly what she's searching for yet um i can imagine that it's extremely overwhelming and also extremely not disappointing but there's just so much to wade through because you're not only wading through the information you're also wading through the information so that you can work out your own feelings mm-hmm. about and, yourself and i think especially with things like transition or or contemplating the possibility that you yourself may be trans um there can sort of be this sense of i need to find a community or a group of people that can give me a sense of the future because Mm -hmm. the sense of the future that i used to have now feels um vague or unclear or impossible and and i'm looking to see have other people felt this way before if so what do they do about it does that feel possible for me in what ways are we similar in what ways are we different so it, it can be really uh, wonderful to see a story or somebody else's experience it feels like oh oh me too and then to see a difference and that can feel like oh god do i not even have this connection right is anyone like me yeah i mean yeah it's it's such a big question of where just not only where to start but like how how do you start right because it, it seems like the first step has been made in the sense that the um letter writer is there a different term for when it's a voicemail uh the caller i guess the caller yeah that's obvious i should have known that um that they've made the first step which is you know accepting and acknowledging that they feel something and that something is maybe not in line with the thing that they've been assigned right and so that's the first step but once you've made that step it I can understand why it feels like it's so wide open because you don't really have. And also the the caller says that, you know, they don't live in a city. They don't have a lot of sort of resources for these kinds of things or people maybe to go to that they can, you know, actually physically be in the same room with or chat with or what whatever it may be. And so it can feel like you're just at sea. Um, so I, I completely understand the just the feeling of there being so much out there and that being a good thing, but also a really 
really scary thing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things. And, uh, you know, mostly I would say, I think the most crucial work that you're going to get to do right now is to just listen to yourself um, and to think a lot about like what's coming up for you, what feels relevant, what feels important, what feels worth contemplating. Um, so more than like, here is a reading list. And if you work your way through these five books and these three websites, at the end of it, you will know for sure um, what your experience is, what your identity is, what you want to do, how you want to be understood, how you want to talk about yourself, how you want to be talked about. Um, I, I don't think that that that's something I can give you. Um, and I think too, one of the things that's just really, um, individual is everybody's responses to different things. Like uh, there might be, um, something that one person responds to really strongly and another person might feel sort of unmoved by or, or alienated by. And that does not, um, mean that you are or are not trans or have some sort of transgender experience. So I'll just say, um, the the sort of guiding principle that I would encourage you to have is just a real sense of right now you're investigating and that's a neutral activity. You're learning more about yourself and about other people and whatever, you know, this sounds very like uh, loosey goosey, but like whatever the outcome of this is for you is good because you're just asking yourself questions and trying to learn more. Um, so it, it sounds like the, the really horrifyingly negative stuff has really jarred you in that sense of uh, I, I want something that's maybe a little bit more curated um, or, or that will um, uh, maybe cordon off some of the like really upsetting things that, mm -hmm. that I'm not interested in kind of looking at right now. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things. There's um, the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference, which, I, by the way, I'm not suggesting go to Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I, I'm just saying that it, you can look that up. They have a lot of resources, um, a, a lot of um like remote events. They have a, a lot of things that may be helpful to you to read. Um, that's like kind of a, a helpful hub, I think. There's also Trans Lifeline, which I think a lot of people assume is just for somebody um, experiencing like a sort of life or death crisis. Um, it's actually, uh, you know, it, it is primarily for transgender people experiencing a crisis that's nonspecific. Um, and they, they, they include the fact that this includes people who may be struggling with their gender identity and are not sure that they are transgender. We welcome the call of any transgender person in need. Um, so, and it's always staffed by um, transgender people. Um, so again, if, if there's a part of you that feels like, but I'm not sure, or I'm not in a sufficient crisis to call, um, you, you actually qualify according to the, <laughs> like the very uh, organization itself. So the, the number in the United States uh, is 877-565-8860. When it comes to things like personal narratives, you know, there may be some that you connect with, some that you don't. I can't promise you that any one of these will feel like, oh my gosh, this is the thing. Um, thank goodness. Um, one one book that I think a lot of people have found especially helpful um, is Julia Serrano's Whipping Girl, um, which was you know written by a, a, a trans woman, which I know is not like your specific experience, but um, it's really thoughtful, um, really. Uh, exhaustive in terms of like the the scope uh, of its interest and uh, can help make a lot uh, a lot of this whole situation feel a little bit less daunting so that's that's a place that i would encourage you to start with there's also um uh trans bodies trans selves uh, a resource for the transgender community and it's like a big kind of encyclopedia type book um again and it may feel like i'm thinking about feelings right now and and reading about like uh, uh health issues or like steps that people may be taking does not connect with me um so again that that may 
be powerful for you. It may not. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of like, what are some, I just want to counter a thing you said earlier. Yeah, about, please. About counter not me. going to Philadelphia. I think you should go to Philadelphia. Okay. Seems yeah. like a cool place. Um, they won the Super Bowl. They got that going for them. And yeah, Philadelphia is cool. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Do, do go to Philadelphia. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I also really like the thing you said about the fact that this is really about investigation and that no matter what happens at the end of the investigation, that it's not bad. Um, I think a lot of times when people are questioning things, um, especially things about their identity, um, that they feel like they have to have a resolution and it has to be something that is a different from the thing that they currently are um, and that they have to be all in on it as soon as the investigation is over, which, you know, maybe that is what will happen for the caller, but, you know, it doesn't have to. And if you get to the end of this and you decide that it's not right for you or that you're maybe you're not trans, maybe you're something different, um, then that's also good, too. Um, and, yeah, I, I really I, I really think that's something that people can go into this should should take into situations like this, because especially with so much information being out there and so much being about like the steps people take after the investigation, um, it can feel like, oh, well, that has to be my path, too. Right. Yeah. And it it doesn't necessarily. I'll, I'll throw out another couple of just specific options. There's also Transgender History by Susan Stryker, um, which is a really fantastic book that focuses on like American transgender history from like the mid 20th century till now um, and is really comprehensive. Um, and, and I'll just say this too. Um, oftentimes when it comes to stories like trans narratives, it can be really wonderful and helpful to read uh, other people's experiences. And sometimes it, it can feel so different based on things like sexuality um, or race um, or, or class, um, because there are ways in which like the experience of a gay trans man is going to look often very, very different from a heterosexual trans man um, or ways in which like, um, you know, whiteness facilitates a certain kind of transition experience that a person of color is just not going to um, experience. Um, and so, again, that's not to say you should only look for people with the exact things that you think uh, are, are integral to, to your experience, but that can be really helpful too. Like sometimes there's this sense of like, um, certain types of narratives or certain types of like, um, you know, attractive, able-bodied, um, cis-passing sort of stories are the ones that often get the most promoted. Mm -hmm. And and if you differ from those in any way, that can feel alienating. Um, so uh, again, I don't know your experience. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Lou Sullivan. Um, Lou Sullivan wrote a number of books, um, some of which were about his own life and experience, some of which were about um, trans men throughout history. Um, I would encourage you to, to look up uh, any of his works. I'm trying to think of if there's anybody else like in particular um, who I think would be really, really crucial for you to get to know. Um, yeah, I think between Trans Lifeline and a couple of these books um, and the sort of guiding principles, um, there's there's a lot out there. Um, and, and accessing some of these resources might help you kind of pinpoint the things that do awaken the most interest um, or the most powerful emotions in you. Um but yeah, I, I would say if you're if you're feeling horrified poking around on Reddit, which, you know, again, there's no <laughs> editors there. It's just anybody saying anything, um, you know, limit your time there. Limit anything that produces despair. <laughs> I was going to say just general, just minimize your time on Reddit. Yeah. Um, 
and and good luck. You know, call us back. Let us know if any of that was helpful. Let us know how you're doing. Um, I know how intense that experience can be. So I, I feel you, and and I'm really glad that you that you called. Thank you. All right, Crystal, we did it. For we better or for worse, <laughs> um, we have either helped a lot of people or ruined a couple of lives. I don't feel like I helped that much, but. Well, I didn't want to say anything. But, um, <laughs> Fair. No, thank you so much um, for helping uh, wade through a series of increasingly thorny uh, images. I liked how you started like real. I mean, not no, the first one was pretty intense, too. With redneck family, that was pretty. It was just. I, I will sometimes think like, oh, there's like a clear uh, like shift in tone throughout the letters. And then I'll mm -hmm. go back and be like, oh, they were all heavy or like, yeah. oh, they were all ultimately, maybe they're all going to be fine. Yeah. Um, but whatever good or ill we have managed to do, it's over now. Um, <laughs> and our only thing to do now is say goodbye and depart. And absolve ourselves of any responsibility. <laughs> That's the goal. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.